Well, here's a here's a, a fun fact about beef that's probably going to change your your whole perspective on the beef industry. Um, so most of the beef that we eat in the United States is actually not United States beef. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we actually ship most of our beef uh, to Japan and a couple other places. But Japan is one of our biggest contenders for beef. Um, and we get most of our beef from Australia. What? Hello and welcome to Talk Ag to Me, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brian Black, and in today's episode, we're talking all about food pricing. To join me for this episode, I have another old guest of mine, uh, Taylor. Taylor, why don't you go ahead and remind the good audience who you are? Not <laughs> the good audience. <laughs> um, so my name is Taylor Eland. I, last time we talked, I think we did the rural-urban split. Uh, I run a show called Contrarics. It's this mix between culture and politics. Uh, it's more right-wing, but it's not what you're thinking, I guarantee you. Right now, we're on a little bit of a break as I'm doing some stuff in my personal life and we'll be back on um if by the time this is released it'll be late February we'll be back but awesome well um by the time this episode comes out you'll probably be back and if awesome. you are then I will share you all around make sure people can find you once again appreciate it yep contrarics.com it's pretty easy awesome uh so yeah so uh, you reached out to me about doing a an episode on food pricing so uh, first of all, what what kind of got you thinking about that topic in particular? So over the last couple of years, I've been bouncing around a little bit. And then, of course, with the recent inflation and COVID measures, uh, we've all seen pricing change. So to give a little bit of background, when I moved away from Fresno for college um, and ended up in San Diego, I one of the first things I realized, and this is back in 2019, so pre-COVID, pre no. 15 wow 2015 pre-covid pre it all of this stuff is that food was a lot more money down there uh, and it's like you know you don't notice it item to item but over time the bill added up and i was like oh that's kind of funny you know having lived in the breadbasket of the world food is just not something that i thought of as expensive you know because it's all a lot of it's grown right here a lot of the cows are either here or nearby in norcal so i noticed that there was a pricing difference and then when i went to law school after college um, this would have been 2019 and moved to Spokane, Washington food pricing killed me. Um, just realizing how much there was a difference, you know, we're talking upwards of a dollar per item difference in some of the food I was getting up there. And some of that's going to come to the grocery store choices. Sure. But you know, to get item for item, that much of a difference when you're on a budget, student loan budget, thanks to law school and stuff like that. I just realized this is really a issue that people don't think about that is affecting Americans throughout the spectrum and everywhere because there are entire regions who will shit on California, for example, talking about how expensive it is to live here. And I would then go visit a place like Utah where my family is sort of, you know, laying some roots and they would kind of jump into that bandwagon of hating California. And I'm like, you know how much more you're paying in food? It, it gets closer to even than you realize. You sure you're paying more in taxes. Sure, you have to deal with the government you may or may not like. But beef is cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, with COVID and we've seen the whole inflation thing happen. And I think it's, I think even everybody, even if you're not politically informed, you've seen pricing change, even at places like Taco Bell. Um, 
just to see price rises, it's actually an issue that people aren't talking about because if you were already on the edge of not being able to afford your apartment or afford your house, your car payment, health insurance, whatever, and food is now sending you over the edge, plus the added expenses of COVID testing or two weeks off work or masks or whatever, there are people who are legitimately in bad financial situations and it's because things like beef, soup, broth, ramen, rice is rising in costs. And it's something that I hope more people realize. And I figured you would be a great person to talk about because, frankly, my political side can maybe talk about policy and to an extent the law behind it. I don't know the first damn thing about food production outside of like the basic high level stuff. And I knew that you ran an agricultural show, so I thought you would have some insight that would be good to share and even if your audience already knows about it it would still be a link that i could send to mine and be like hey go listen to this <laughs> and learn a little bit so i thought you would be the perfect fit to talk to yeah definitely so you you hit the nail right on the head this is a topic that definitely needs more attention and that i think that even my audience you know probably doesn't know a decent amount about just because it's not a topic that I've even talked about in full depth. I've talked about kind of the pieces that make it up um, because like with anything with agriculture, it's complicated. You know, there, there's a lot that depends. Um, so food pricing is one of those things that's not like there's not one stagnant uh, variable that's changing everything about food price. There's a lot right. of moving pieces that cause food to fluctuate in, in, in its cost. Um, and I think that for the most part, even people, you know, who are involved in agriculture, it, unless they're like involved in the production level to the degree that they see the food costs uh, from the, the producer's perspective, they probably don't even know how it happens on the large scale just because like you said, it's not talked about a lot. It's not really taught in school a lot. It's not like a conversation that we typically have to worry about. Um, but there are so I'll, I'll cover I'll cover the two examples you gave. So one of them being uh, food costs different food costs are different in different areas, and then right. the other one being uh, the inflation. You know, since COVID has has begun, the inflation in food costs. Um, so those have happened for different reasons, but very similar reasons. Um, so the first one being that food costs depend heavily on, like I mentioned, a few different factors, one of the big ones being transportation costs. Uh, so transportation would result in, you know, food being different in different areas because, like you, you mentioned, we're here in the breadbasket of the world. We have easy access to food all over the place. Farms are everywhere, so the food cost is going to be a little bit lower just because the transportation cost is not nearly as excessive, whereas in areas that are a bit, a bit scarce in agriculture are going to have extremely high food costs just because they don't really have anywhere to get food from locally, so they have to ship all of it in from somewhere else. Um, even exported food has to be shipped in somewhere else because a lot of the exported food goes to areas that are more agriculturally based. Um, and so just the, the, you know, the cost of that truck having to drive an extra, you know, hundred miles to, to the city is going to automatically increase food prices. Right. Um, so that's a big thing for, for transportation costs. Now there's other costs that kind of just, you know, on, on a, on a flat scale standardized food costs. And that's, you know, the cost of production, the cost of, of, like I mentioned, transportation, the packaging, the, you know, there, there's a lot of different, again, there's a lot of different pieces that, that factor in there, but when we start to look at the inflation with COVID prices, people are, are saying, okay, well, you know, I get there being a, a shortage of toilet paper or a shortage of cleaning supplies, but why is there a shortage of food? You know, agriculture never stops. It's not like they're having to shut down, you know, farms because of COVID. You know, the, the cows aren't getting sick from it. So what what's the deal? Right. Um, one of the more, more unfortunate things that I saw out of COVID besides the actual, you know, cases was uh, a lot of, especially dairy farms and swine, uh, swine processing facilities were... 
having to basically dump milk, uh, pre-euthanize uh, hogs, and basically waste product. And the reason why is not because the producers weren't able to comply or because the producers had to make adjustments. There was some of that, but not nearly to the degree that would have made a big difference. A lot of the processing plants, so the packagers, the um, you know the the people who are are cleaning the fruit or who are you know making sure like inspecting the meat or making the cuts or the slaughterhouses, you know all of those in between spots that go from farm to plate, everything that happens on the way there, those had to get heavily regulated because of COVID, and that caused a massive slowdown in the process. Which means, so yeah, the producer has the product and the retailer or the consumer wants the product, but we have no way of getting it to them, and right. so. That caused scarcity in product, which automatically is going to increase prices. Um, it caused a uh, like a, a massive downgrade of, of a lot of farms. They had to they had to slice their herds in half in some cases just because they couldn't afford to feed that many head and not have them slaughtered um, because they weren't getting paid for them. Right? You know, at, at that point you're just wasting money. Um, and you know, we don't like to say that it's all about the money, but to some degree it has to be right. Um, so because of that, that you know, inability to transport food to the consumer, we just saw, you know, prices increase because it was really hard on farmers. And the thing is, like the price increase uh, for the inflation was not even, it didn't even get back to the farmers, you know, farmers right. who were throwing away milk, who were, who were having to kill these pigs, uh, they didn't see a dime of, of the, the price increase in, in the food. It was simply, you know, the, the packers, the distributors, the retailers that, you know, were able to sell what little product they had that was getting all the money from this. Um, so that's kind of to to start off our our conversation here on a, a bit less of a light note. That's kind of the 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 primary reason why those two specific differences in, in costs were attributing. Right, and it's frustrating too because like when you're having these kinds of conversations with people, you know, to go back to our conversation with the rural urban split thing, if you're the type of person you just go to a grocery store and food is there and you don't understand the moving parts that are move, you know, that are working together in order to bring you your box of macaroni. Um, you, you don't understand how things like rising gas prices, sure, they affect your bottom line because you have to pay a little bit more to get to work. But when you're talking about 50 gallons that it takes for a semi-truck to get to, you know, one end of California to the other, that's a substantial price difference when you're talking about a dollar or two dollars per gallon. Um, and this is on top of the labor shortage that's happened because of COVID and because of inflation, because now that the money is becoming less valuable why are you going to work when you're not going to get paid as much and we have seen this especially in the trucking industry um and transportation sector and it it's something that i wish more people understood from a policy point of view because when you have all of these moving parts like you said it's not easy it's the modern um logistic system is a feat of human genius um to not understand the importance of making sure that people are still going to work or still being able to drive economically their semi-trucks or their pickup trucks to the job site or whatever it may be to keep things like packaging plants open or meat processing plants open, but then you want to simultaneously complain when food is not on the shelves. It's frustrating, and I just wish more people had more awareness of the system, how it works more than just a semi-truck shows up to my grocery store, food gets unloaded, why is there no food? And it's also interesting because I am saying I am seeing different parts of the country are reacting differently to the shortage. For example, here in Fresno, there's never really been a shortage. Um, like, there are squeezes and there are products you can't get, but the question is whether or not there's going to be food at the grocery store. The answer is always yes. You might not get your preferred brand of 
juice or your preferred brand of macaroni or whatever, but I've never had any food scarcity problems here. But then, and I don't even know how much to believe these posts, but like you'll see reports from other parts of the country where their grocery stores are considerably bare. And, you know, they want to do things like blame the president or blame the Democrats or blame the Republicans. And it's like, that's not what's going on here. This is an economics issue, not a political one. You have to make it, you have to incentivize people to show up to work the processing plants, which we are surrounded by them here in the Central Valley. People weren't going to work because of COVID outbreaks. People weren't going to work because of the two-week minimum um, quarantine period, which that's not to say that's a bad thing, but it's something that you have to take into account for when these economies are changing so much. And people don't see that. But then they want to sit and they do want to blame people, whether it's the politicians on the other side of wherever you are, blue state, red state. You know, you want to blame the president. You want to blame somebody else. But nobody wants to blame themselves because they're not willing to say, hey, we need to support policies that bridge a line between, you know, earlier in the pandemic, it was COVID zero and keeping food on the table. And, you know, it's easy when you're in a position like me I have a, I have a job in the legal industry. I went to law school. Um, I say this even as a conservative. I have been exceptionally lucky throughout the pandemic. If you're the type of person who you work a white collar job and you sit at your desk and you don't have financial insecurities, it's hard to understand the position that a lot of these processors are in, especially the grunt workers who are making damn near minimum wage. Um, that's on top of the increased travel costs because it's not like these places start shop in city centers that have short transit times who are now being hit by the increased costs brought on by COVID and inflation. And they're not going to work because they need to find something that pays more or that is closer to them. Um, but people in my position are happy to bitch and complain for lack of a better term and push for policies that aren't going to solve the actual problem. Um, but we're going to keep running inflation through the window and we're going to keep not caring about the people who actually need help I don't know. It's frustrating. <laughs> no, I, I get you. Uh, trust me, like in, in the agricultural sectors, this is like the biggest, com not complaint, but the biggest thing that everyone's kind of griping about right now. Um, and right now it's better, but it, you know, especially during the early, the early few months of COVID, this was like the big issue to talk about. Um, and you, you brought up a really good point that I really wanted to highlight there, which was uh, the trucking industry. You know, it's something that again, does not get thought about a lot. Um, but not for the reasons that people think, you know, yes, there, there was a lot of, of downgrade in the amount of truckers that we had due to COVID. That was a big thing. Uh, even before that though, we were seeing a massive shortage of truckers and a massive, you know, demand for truckers because a lot of them didn't want to drive with California regulations. And, and this is going to vary from state to state, but even other states that, you know, we're trying to drive into here had to follow our regulations. And a lot of truck drivers did not want to deal with that. So right. We were seeing shortages in that area, which causes upset in the market. And then COVID struck, and that just threw everything out the window. And that caused even more upset in the market. We had an even larger shortage of truckers. So that was a big thing. Um, but, you know, on that same topic of, you know, regulation and, and on, on the issues that that has been causing for the markets, um, have you heard much about Prop 12? No, I've been buried in bar prep. <laughs> okay, so Prop 12 is uh, kind of the new scare on the market. It's this thing. Um, so Proposition 12, California's Proposition 12. I've talked about it before on the podcast briefly, but I, I want to highlight it here because it kind of ties into what we're talking about. There are not necessarily theories, but there's kind of concern that there's going to be a massive shortage of pork in California over the, over the next few months. Oh, I have heard about this. Yes. Yeah, and that there's going to be a like like 
almost like price gouging level of price increase of pork and a couple other products too but like those other products are not as worrisome pork is the kind of the big one that we're worried about um because proposition 12 requires agricultural facilities to uh basically change their housing conditions for their animals doesn't sound like a bad thing right and i i understand why anyone would want to vote on that um but the thing is the conversation that wasn't being had was yeah we're going to help out these animals but that's going to make it so it's really hard to take care of these animals um because there's a logistics that comes to feeding 40 million people right so you know like it so they are requiring um egg laying hens veal calves and uh, farrowing sows so pregnant pigs that are going to have babies soon uh to be kept in facilities that are of a certain size and those those sizes vary for each species and they have that all laid out in, in the bill or in the proposition but basically what that means is by january 1st of this year all pork uh, all pork operations in in California had to stand by the standard, and that wouldn't be as much of a problem because we don't produce a ton of pork in California. We produce some, but we get most of it from the Midwest. The problem is, though, we're not allowed to buy pork from the Midwest unless they follow the compliance too, and that was a big no-no for the Midwest. So we had a ton of states that we would typically do business with shut down our business trades because they don't want to follow our compliance, and so that. not only upset the pork industry but it upset every other industry that relies on those trade agreements and so we had a lot of issue with that early on but now we're starting to see that there might even be a bigger issue of okay well we're gonna have a pork shortage we're gonna have a a massive inflation in pork prices we don't have nearly enough pork in california alone to feed everybody for the the amount of demand that we have because california is you know an incredibly populated area um and there's only a few states that are still willing to do business with us so now what do we do um, so that's another example of, you know, like pricing being affected by other factors than just the farmer wants to charge a lot. Cause the, really the farmer doesn't get a whole lot. Right. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but, uh, yeah, that's, you know, because we were talking about, you know, truckers and, and kind of how they're struggling with, with regulation and also with, with working conditions because of COVID, um, the pork industry has gone through very, very similar growing pains because of regulations and because of lack of communication between states and, and why, you know why these these propositions are in place and it's not to say that the proposition is a good or a bad thing it's just a matter of like you said having the conversation about is this a good idea for the long-term economics of this industry right and and if it's not what compensation do we have to make sure that all these producers don't get screwed over by this right and this is probably why i find myself in the conservative camp more often than not because it's not so much that i care one way or the other about the you know the feel-good policies of the left versus the right it's that at the end of the day we have to consider the realistic complications and it's really easy from my house here in fresno to sit and say you know oh i would like the pigs to have a more humane environment but you if you try and visualize 40 million people, you can't do it. Your brain does not know what that looks like or does not know how it works or does not know. You wouldn't know. Is that one football field? I mean, okay, you probably could get that far. It's not one. But like you wouldn't know how many football fields of people packed in that actually is. You wouldn't know the complications of how many miles would have to be driven to deliver things in all corners of the state. And that's just California. And California um, seems to be the land, the embodiment of like feel-good policy. And we pass things because they make sense on the first pass or a second pass. Um, But then when you kind of put it into this puzzle piece of the bigger picture, whether that is statewide, nationwide, or internationally, our voters, left and right, uh, tend to not think much further than their city block. And it's frustrating because it's not that simple, especially with things like agriculture. People think of agriculture as the simple side of economics, and really it's not. 
you know when you can like software is pretty simple once the network has been created hardware even to an extent is fairly simple the concepts are all the same but but with agriculture you have so many moving parts because you have so many living parts it's a lot more complicated than a highly educated person who's never stepped foot on a farm <laughs> understands. And right. it's, I say this is somebody who's never stepped foot on a farm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take you on a farm one day. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's a great example. I, I didn't know it was a proposition. I thought it was a log cause I've heard a little bit about it. You know, there's not going to be any more bacon on the shelves and I'm not a bacon person. So I don't really care. But yeah, it's the question is, okay, so now we're going to have an increased demand of things like beef and things, um, beef, chicken, vegetables, right, to offset the lack of pork. And the question is, are these industries going to be able to handle the increased demand when they already can't find workers? There, there is a problem in the current situation of getting people into meat processing plants, to get people to pick the apples, to get people to, you know, till the land. And now we're going to have to have increased dependence on statewide production because we're no longer allowing people in the state to produce pork. All that demand has to go somewhere and this is econ like economics 101 stuff this isn't complicated but people just don't know or <laughs> care right and and you know I, i'm not even sure this like i think not caring is a big part of it in some areas but i think for the most part they just don't it's like you said they don't think that far ahead you know it's and that's not to say that you know people are are not you know, thoughtful of this kind of stuff, but it's like, we're in a very unique position in, in a country where we don't have to think about that stuff. You know, right. it's not, you know, we're not constantly thinking about, okay, well, what's food prices going to look like tomorrow? Am I going to be able to feed my family? You know, because we're, we're pretty fortunate here. That's not really a big issue. I mean, I guess in some, you know, lower grade areas, sure, that might be an issue, but for the most part, a lot of people don't have to worry about that until it hits their, their, you know, their paycheck. And then they're like, oh, I see now it's a little too late to fix it now, but I see what I did wrong. Right. Um, and so that, you know, that kind of goes back into, and you know, I, I kind of wanted to, to highlight another thing you mentioned there, which was labor, which is another huge part of, of cost of food. Um, there's an, a, a severe labor shortage in, in the country as a whole right now, but there's been a severe labor shortage in agriculture for like, all of history. Um, but especially in, in recent years with, you know, with new technology coming out with new automation, there's been a lot of people complaining, well, okay, well, we're having all this technology come out. It's going to take away, you know, jobs of innocent farm workers. It's like, no, 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 we don't have enough farm workers. Like there's, right. n there, there will never be enough people to fill all the jobs. Like I think if I remember correctly, there are 7 million jobs in agriculture in the United States alone that need to be filled. Okay. Um, which, you know, 7 million jobs, like it sounds like, okay, well we have a lot more people than that, but a lot of people don't want to work in agriculture. And I can't say I blame them. It's hard work. Yeah, know? and we haven't even gotten to the stigma that people will attach to agricultural right. workers. And in places like California, where we're known for Silicon Valley and we're known for Los Angeles, people don't mm -hmm. go to college to go be ag workers. They go to college to be software programmers, or mm -hmm. they want to go be. They move here to be an actress or an actor or a singer or whatever. Right. Um, people aren't moving to Fresno to work the fields. Right. And and let's just say they do go to college, you know, for agriculture. It's not to be a field worker. They want to be an ag business major. They want to run, you know, ag agricultural corporations. They want to do agricultural like you know design you know in terms of like like um like computer science they want to design the computers that could be used in tractors like a lot of people or they want to be pcas or they want to be you know they're not going to be like you mentioned field workers a lot of our a lot of our workers are you know either uh, immigrants or they're just you know high school students are looking for jobs or you know they're somebody who who doesn't have a college degree you know we're we're, we're not exactly getting like the workers that we have are great but we're just not getting enough of them Right. Um, and so that's going to impact, you know, 
cost of food as well. And and so I kind of wanted to break down uh, what's called the uh, food farm uh, bill. So the food farm bill refers to a dollar uh, and how that dollar is spent on food and then how much of that dollar is sent to the farmer versus the packers versus the retailer versus, you know, all of the pieces that get a piece of the pie. Um, and surprisingly enough, the labor actually does get the largest portion of the dollar, which is good. But again, we just don't have enough of it to go around. Right. Um, so I have a model here. This is from 2006. This is the most recent model they have. Unfortunately, I wish they had. A, I wish they updated it, but they haven't yet. Um, so as of 2006, and I can tell you it's way lower now. The farmer makes about 14 percent of, of the dollar. Um, so for every dollar that's spent on an apple, that apple farmer gets 14 cents, um, which a lot of people think, OK, well, if I'm going to, you know, I'm going to buy, uh, you know, this like organic food because the, it's going to more of it's going to go to the farmer. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what what you're buying unless you're going to a farmer's market or unless you're buying it at the farmer's door. You're you're not giving all that money to the farmer. Like without fail, you know, you're going to have about. So this one says 19, but the other one says 14. Uh, yeah, 14% goes to the dollar. The other 86% goes to the rest of the process. Um, about 20-ish percent goes to labor. And then the rest of that, you know, what would that be? 60, 66% goes to packaging, to transportation, to retailers, to the, all the in-between in stuff that's necessary, and we need that. But people want to complain about how high food prices are and they want to say, well, farmers are charging too much for one. The farmer doesn't set the price. If he did, then he would hopefully get a lot more money out of it. And for two, the farmer's getting even less than, than, you know, than anybody else in the pie. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to blame the farmer for that. Um, so there's that whole conversation to be had too about, you know, what steps of the chain are actually making money off of this? And because, you know, people people argue about organic food being more expensive or about, you know, natural, like all natural food, quote unquote, being more expensive. A lot of the reason that that stuff is expensive is because the packagers can charge more for putting a fancy label on it. That means nothing. That's at the end of the day, that's what it is. You know, they're, they're saying, hey, I'm going to put the sticker on it and you're going to pay more for it. And the farmer gets absolutely none of that because I put the sticker on it. So I'm going to get paid for it. Yes. Organic certification is one of those things that will send me into a rant pretty quick. <laughs> um, not because I'm against organic. It's just that people don't understand what that sticker certification means. Right. No, it, it's absolutely true. And, you know, it going back to the whole like people not understanding the the steps of the process, you know, if we could have a more cohesive conversation about every step of the chain that leads to that food being on your plate it would make a lot more sense to people where that money is going and it would hopefully encourage them to spend their money in ways that benefit the farmers and the workers as much as possible, because that's where we want, that's where we want most of the dollar to go. And that's just not necessarily the case for the most part. Right. And, and so what is a food that you're comfortable with that you could explain the whole process through? Um, I would say milk is one that is kind of easy to go through. I tend to use as an example a lot. Okay. Um, so milk, you know, obviously we get it from the cow, you know, as soon as we milk it, uh, it goes into this massive vat and in, in the vat it's chilled and it's pasteurized, um, it's pasteurized first and then it's chilled. Um, and so the pasteurization process is kind of the first step of the like processing chain. Um, so after pasteurization and some dairies will pasteurize on the facility, some will, will ship it off and send it to somewhere to be pro uh, pasteurized. Um, that send off is, you know, the first transportation cost. And then once it's pasteurized, you know, you remove all the bacteria from it, you, you know, heat it up to a point where it, where it kills off anything that could be potentially harmful. Um, fun fact, non-pasteurized milk is actually healthier than pasteurized milk. Um, if it's fresh from the cow, if you have it sit for a few days and obviously there's a high chance for some kind of foodborne illness, but, um, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so it's pasteurized, and then it's super chilled, and then it's uh, sent into the packaging facility where it is packaged in all varieties of ways, you know, cartons, bottles, glass bottles. Uh, depending on where it's going to go, it's, it's packaged in different ways. And then the packagers send it off to the, um, like, I guess, like, it's stamp of approval or, like, it's seal or, you know, whatever kind of, like, marketing stuff that needs to be done to it, um, which the marketing chain is kind of, like, a separate, like, equal part of that processing chain. And then it gets transported excuse me, it gets transported to either the wholesaler or the retailer, uh, wherever it's going to go next. And then, um, I could be wrong. I don't believe there's a ton of broking that goes on with milk. Particularly you'll see broking more with like, t- like, uh, like produce. So like fruits and vegetables, you're going to see, like, you're going to have a broker in between that chain that kind of regulates prices for the retailer. Um, but for milk, that's not necessarily the case. So it goes, you know, to the processor, it goes, and then again, it gets distributed to the, uh, store or the school or the restaurant or wherever it's going and then it eventually reaches the consumer um, so for other foods there's going to be a little bit more complexity you know fruit you're going to clean them you're going to inspect them you're going to you know have all this other stuff that goes into it you're going to sort them by size you're going to sort them by color by variety by whatever milk is one of the most simple to explain and that's why i like to use to explain what steps of the process there are without getting all, all into all the complexities of the different machinery that's used and all that kind of stuff right and we're talking about a product that that's still a lot of steps, even it if it's simple. And you didn't even get into like, you know, the different types of containers, what right. it, the differences in cost there, mm-hmm. differences in production, the ink that you use for the stupid labels. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many parts to food and it's constantly rolling and it's going to fluctuate as the entire market fluctuates. And all you want is the damn gallon of milk. Right. Like, you don't care about the sticker. You don't care about the green ink versus the yellow ink versus mm-hmm. the blue ink. You know, you don't... And that, 1%, 2%, skim, right. full. Like, it's just... Yeah, and that's a whole other step of it is, you know, straining it out to get to the different percentages you want or the different, you know, like, all of that, all the different varieties of milk is a whole different step of the chain for a whole different, you know, like, like you could spend an hour just talking about milk itself. And milk, in my opinion, is one of the most simple and most straightforward food processing, you know, uh, processes. Right. And And every single one of those steps adds additional costs. And that's mm -hmm. one product that you put in your cart. And before you know it, you have 10 products in your cart, 20 products in your cart, 30 products in your cart. If you have a large family and it's all being disrupted by things that range from labor to gas prices to policy to bad Mm -hmm. policy. And it's, it's complicated. <laughs> As with anything in, in well, in agriculture or with policy, you know, there's going to be complications. There's going to be things that depend. It's just the whole process. But, um, yeah, and I think that it's not to say that it's hopeless. You know, th- there are solutions that are being worked on right now to fix a lot of this. People, you know, people are complaining about, about food prices and about, you know, the, the farmer and all, all this kind of stuff. Well, there are ways around the system. Um, they're just not heavily supported at the time, but there are some things that are being worked on that I think would be good to highlight, um, for the sake of just people knowing more about them. So we talked about farmer's markets, you know, we talked about people buying locally and and all of that, you know, that that's going to be a big part of it. Uh, it's going to be difficult for people who don't live around areas that have those available. Um, so this is kind of advice for people who live near rural areas, I guess. But, uh, one of the big things that's being pushed right now for, meat producers that are struggling through proposition 12 and through the massive meat shortages that they've been having to go through because of either COVID or because of other, you know, uh, like economic purposes. Um, but a big thing that, that the industry is kind of pushing right now is, Hey, 
there are four companies that control like 90% of the meat production in the country. How about we stray away from them for a little bit and look towards a lot of the smaller meat producers? Um, and the same could be said for, you know, fruit producers or for, you know, like dairies are a bit tougher, um, you know, just because like a lot of dairies have really good, like dairies have LLCs set up that are really, really good at helping out the farmer. So dairies are, are pretty, pretty good. The dairy prices still fluctuate a lot. And right now they're really hurting, but for the most part, a lot of dairymen are doing pretty okay um, in certain areas of the country. In California, it's debatable. But for the most part, the, the, the biggest advice that people are pushing right now is, hey, if you can find a local producer that's willing to sell you product at the door, the only risk you're really hitting there is the food safety risk, which for the sake of, you know, like farmers don't want to hurt people so like, they're going to follow food safety standards more often than not anyways and if they don't they're regulated you know to the point where they you know they like that's like one of their biggest costs is food safety insurance so like they almost have to have food safety as a part of their operation or else they can't be in operation sure um you know just to sell to these big chains so they're going to be following the processes anyway why don't you just go up to them and say hey you know i'd be willing to buy this amount of your meat um i actually know a uh, a pork processor in Visalia who does this, you know, they Sierra Nevada pork. I, you know, I push them all the time. They're fantastic. They have this whole process where you basically get to go on their operation. They'll give you a tour of the whole thing, which is also a big deal because animal producers don't like giving tours of anything because, you know, people will find ways to make it look bad. Um, they'll give you a tour of their whole operation. They let you pick the pig that you want to eat and they will butcher it and sell you the cuts right there. And it's like, you know, fresh at the door. It's great product. It's very safe and, you know, humane. And they show you how they do all of it. Like it's very, you know, it's a very good operation in terms of, you know, uh, PR for the farmer. And also the, the farmer gets the most amount of money because they're doing all the work. Right. Um, all it asks is that the consumer goes a little bit outside of their comfort zone and spends a little more time researching and that the farmer spends a little more time making sure that their stuff is safe and secure. Um, but really besides the processing costs, which there are even some local processors that be willing to make deals with, with small farmers to help them out more. Um, I think the biggest fix to the food pricing issue would be to support smaller farmers. Cause then you're taking away a lot of those larger scale costs that are going to be incorporated and the farmer gets more money and you don't have to spend as much on your food for it. Right. It's a little bit of decentralization. Which... Yeah. It, you know, it's going to maybe in the short term cause prices to change or go up a little bit, or you may have to like go a little bit out of your way as time costs. But at the end of the day, what you're doing is supporting your local community, keeping money yep. within it, as opposed to some conglomerate, God knows where, <laughs> owned by some other conglomerate, God knows what, right? Um, siphoning money out from the farmer or you or anywhere else in the chain. No, it's a it's a big it's a big issue. It's something that I do want people to be more educated about. It's like it's not even that I'm terribly passionate about it because here I am in my desk job, <laughs> um, but I get really tired of people talking about how you know countries going to shit or states going to shit because Biden this or Newsom that or blah blah blah. It's like no 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 no. You just don't understand how the system works. Right. Um, and you did a fantastic job of explaining it. I think that was great. Thank you. And. You know, this is also something that you definitely see a difference on between whether or not you live in the city or live in the country or live in the foothills or whatever, you you know, the different locales and cultures that you'll kind of come across. Um, people do not have a grasp of what it takes. <laughs> no, they don't. And but they're mad about things like computers. You right. know, right? Because, like, let's think of the things that there are shortages on that people are aware of um, and acutely pissed off about, you know, like PlayStations and Xboxes and graphics cards and the mm -hmm. tech spaces severely hit by the global supply cr chain crisis and it's like cool you're mad about the fact that there are that there are ps5s in la port not being loaded on the trucks um gotta 
bigger problem's going to hit you a little sooner than that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you can survive a few months without a PS5. You can't survive more than a couple weeks without your food. So right. Yes, exactly. Our, our priorities are a little skewed. Than... Just, just a smidge. <laughs> just a smidge. No, but, well, I hope I was able to answer your question about food pricing pretty effectively. I, I think you did a good job of explaining it. I think people listening in will be able to understand you more than me trying to <laughs> kind of sort of explain it um i don't want to get too deep on the policy side of things because frankly the the reason the policy sucks is because you vote for people who don't understand what they're legislating so if you understand what you're wanting to legislate then you could in theory you know quiz the people or figure out if the people know what they're talking about who are making these damn rules and then stop voting for them um we can talk all we want about policy but at the end of the day talking about policy is a waste of time if you don't know what you're voting for Mm -hmm. proposition 12 is actually a great example now that you've explained it yeah it's classic front you know first pass let's make the you know situation better for pigs uh we don't like in factory farming is it's a bad site Sure. Um, it's it's not comfortable, and sh- it has issues. And that, and that isn't to say that we should say that these issues can't be solved. But when you don't know why we factory farm the way we do, or the implications of going to a much more open range system, don't be shocked when your food prices jump through the roof. You have to understand why we do what we do in order to regulate it more effectively without breaking the entire chain. Right. And I think we have done a great job of breaking chains in the last couple of years, whether that be in pork, whether that be in tech, um, or even software, mm-hmm. which just just spend, how long was this show? 40 minutes? Spend 40 minutes, if even that, and learn a little bit to where when you vote, you're a little bit more informed. The answer to most things is education. <laughs> which is why I want to be a teacher. Which is why you want to be a teacher, <laughs> and you do a fantastic agricultural communication show thank you i appreciate that um but no i mean i I think on top of your point you know it's it the the ideal situation for anyone involved in agriculture that's passionate about this kind of stuff is if we could just have people pay a little bit more attention you know if they could if they could read the line a little bit more if they would take five seconds to ask a farmer we're all over facebook reach out to us if you have questions you know um or you know even more ideally if we could have legislators take five minutes to visit a farm and see how it functions before they're passing things that could ultimately alter not just the farmer's lives but even the politician's life they have to pay for food too you know and they may not struggle with as much as some others but it's still going to hit them at the end of the day and that's the crazy part it's not like we're asking people to go get a major or a minor in agricultural science it's like instead of maybe watching that tv show you're going to watch for half an hour tonight go on youtube and learn a little bit about economies of scale of farms And and there are people who do a good job of being entertaining while explaining it because that's how markets work and mm-hmm. the best rush at the top. But no, go go ahead and go watch whatever show you're gonna watch tonight. Right. Um because you don't want to take twenty minutes, thirty minutes. And that's you know, farming, aviation, technology, it's everywhere. And mm-hmm. it doesn't take much. It's not saying you need to know the ins and outs of milk because you don't. But if you understand that there's more to any given system than it comes from a cow, presumably there's a farmer, and it at some point it shows up at the grocery store. Right. You'd be a lot better off. Yeah. And I, I've been fortunate enough that through this podcast, I've learned that people are at least a, li- a little bit more aware than I gave them credit for. Um, when, right. I, when I started talking to people outside of the ag sector, I was a little bit, I'll admit, I was a little condescending. I was like, do you guys know where chocolate milk comes from? You know, which is like, but it's but, the brown cow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, there's a reason that I bring that up. You know, there, I, I've, I've talked to people who have legitimately told me before, you know, Hey, why, you know, how can we have a milk shortage? Why don't they just pull more out of the back? Cause they don't 
you know, they don't legitimately realize. And like some of them are joking, like, well, yeah, just just make more milk, you know. But like there are people who legitimately have had to explain to before, you know, milk doesn't just come from the back of the store. There's an entire process. Like what what do you think cows are, are for? You know, and they think, well, you know, they're they're pets or people just, you know, milk them for fun. They're like, you know, that milk isn't what we drink in the, in the store. It's like, well. Where else would it come from? You know, do you think they make it in a lab? You think that it just appears in the store? Like that's not how this works. Right. Um, and you know, I, like I mentioned, I've, I've been fortunate enough to learn that that's not the case for most people. But there are still some out there that could use that that wake up call. And it's five minutes, right? <laughs> exactly. All the stuff that you learn of in your animal books, blow that up times ten thousand, and you understand a little bit about how milk shows up at a store. Right. Nope. Hundred percent. And and you know, you'll have this. Another like minor point that we haven't really touched upon is the different locations too. Like understanding the cost of transportation is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, to get like let's say you get Harris Ranch beef, right? That's based in NorCal, if I'm thinking correctly. I think someone's gonna correct me now. <laughs> um, but if you live in NorCal, then the beef from Harris Ranch is significantly cheaper. But if you live in a place that doesn't do as much beef farming, I'm gonna say like Florida. Yeah. Um, they don't do a ton if any beef farming it has to get there somewhere so you're talking about loading up semi trucks or i don't think they'll do i don't think they can do ships but semi trucks maybe planes full of beef to get from california wyoming montana indiana wherever to florida and we're talking hundreds if not thousands of miles and refrigerated containers which adds costs and trucks that add costs because of gasoline and gasoline rice it's like stop complaining about the fact there's no food if you're not willing to support the people who are making it or understand that there it's more complicated than oh there's probably a farm somewhere in florida that makes cows or else we wouldn't have beef it's like no probably not <laughs> right well here's a here's a, a fun fact about beef that's probably going to change your your whole perspective on the beef industry um so most of the beef that we eat in the United States is actually not United States beef. Oh, great. <laughs> so uh, we actually ship most of our beef uh, to Japan and a couple other places. But Japan is one of our biggest contenders for beef. Um, and we get most of our beef from Australia. What? <laughs> yeah. So Wait, why? So so here's here's the funny part about it. We're not picky. So and apparently Japan is Japan is very picky. Uh, so Japan is notorious for having Wagyu beef, which I'm sure you've heard yep. of it. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very, very expensive beef. It's a very high quality beef um, because I don't know if you've heard about how they raise these Wagyu cows. It is wild. Um, they literally uh, hand feed them beer every day and then massage them every day and let them live out on the pasture. And like these cows get like the dream life, you know, but their beef, their beef is the most tender of any in, in the world. You know, they're, they're, it's the best, it's the highest quality beef you can get. Sure. Um, because they're willing to put in the work for it. But Japan has built this like idea of what beef should be because they just produce really good beef. And so we produce phenomenal beef. I mean, like better beef than most other countries in the world. And since we're not willing to pay a ton of money for it, and Japan is, we just give them all of our good beef and we take the pretty okay beef from Australia because we'll still eat it. And it's still good. You know, Australia actually produces really good beef. I think they're like second or third in terms of beef production in term, you know, for, for quality. Um, they produce phenomenal beef. It's just ours is better. So we'll sell it for a better dollar and then get the, the stuff that we're willing to eat for a little bit cheaper from Australia. So it just blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> 
And that's complicated. And it is. The trade agreements are a whole another can of worms. <laughs> that's that's like, you know, a lot of the products that we eat in, in the United States, quite a few of them are produced here, sure. But there are a few that we just, you know, like we may eat some of our own local stuff, but we get we get a lot better deal for it if we give most of it to this country and take it from another country that produces it almost as good in terms of quality, but we can get it for cheaper for them. And we're, we're supporting their economy and we're producing a, a good trade system and we have good agreements. And it's just, there's so much complexity in, in terms of trade. Like today we're talking about United States uh, food prices. You don't want you only want to know food prices across the world. That's a, that's a big topic to, to cover. Right. But yeah. So I hope, I hope I was able to, to blow your mind a little you bit. You just blew my mind a little bit. That's, I had no idea that that, I just figured that we ate beef here. See, and see, as somebody who even spent five minutes and learned about some stuff. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and like that's you know, it's not to say that you know we're we're you know all the beef you eat here is is from Australia because ironically enough, a lot of the beef you eat here is from dairy cows on you know on dairies in, in California. But um, like like I would say a solid ninety percent, and these numbers are arbitrary. I haven't done the research on this, but. Um, I would say it's all 90% of the fast food meat that we eat in California. And especially, I, I would say for the most part in the United States, but especially in California, um, is from dairy cows. You know, we don't even eat, you know, actual like beef animals here. Uh, a lot of our beef animals go into like our higher quality steaks and burgers at like, you know, nicer restaurants. Sure. Um, so like people have this idea of like, yeah, beef's pretty good, but then we have like really good beef over here. It's like, no, beef's really good. We're eating dairy beef. <laughs> so <laughs> we're eating the crap. <laughs> right. That's funny. But that makes sense. It's gonna be again a cost thing. Why spend good? Why spend good money on beef when no one cares for their McDouble? Right. Exactly. You know, and, and I'll tell you firsthand. Like I, I've been to slaughterhouses. Like they they have like the dairy carcasses hanging up. It's like you know, and these are like old cows. You know, they they've they've been done milking for a couple of years. Right, they, their shelf life is done. Yeah, they're like you know they've outlived their their not to say they've outlived their youth their their, their use, but they're they're kind but of they outlived their use. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> to a point where they're just eating money and they're not like they're too old to have like a, a good quality of life. So you know, we butcher them, send them off to the meat plant. Um, and I've been to the to the slaughtering house. It's really cool. You can actually see some of them have like tags on their leg that say like In and Out or Wendy's or like they actually like have oh, wow. like predestinations for these areas and that's how you know that certain uh that certain fast food restaurants actually have really good quality food is because like in and out has like their whole like never frozen like policy you can see it happen you know you could you, you like you actually see them send the meat like the the cuts fresh to in and out and they use them you know like you actually like it's it's kind of crazy to see that you know their claims are not just marketing employees they're actually how that works which i think is really cool awesome. um but, you know, again, like the, the beef we eat here is not the good stuff. The good stuff goes to Japan. <laughs> um, so our, our high quality beef, if if we keep any high quality beef, it's like your Harris Ranches. It's like your, you know, like your like your kind of niche market stuff that's very like Harris Ranch has the, the ranch and the restaurant at the same time. So they're able to do that, you know, on their operation. A lot of beef operations can't do that. They just can't afford to. So they sell it to the big guys, like the big guys sell it to Japan and buy it from Australia and then give us what's what's left nuts yep <laughs> and every part of this process is influenced by labor shortages mm -hmm. and inflation and nuts yep so if you think that you know we're we're all like self-sustaining like you know we're great we are but we're also taking care of a bunch of other countries so we have to get a little bit of help from some other people to, to keep us going so right. it's, it's all getting passed around right because we're willing to deal with less that's right. interesting uh -huh. 
That's shocking. All right. Well, anything else you want to blow through? I mean, that kind of covered everything I had. I know that you talked about touching up on the urban rural stuff. If you want to still go over that, or if we kind of answer your question on that, or uh, not really a question. I just wanted to check in because I think I was one of the first that you, you talked to. Yes. Um, and I provided a little bit of political background for your listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the way that I can. So, how did that end for you? And what were your thoughts at the end of the day? You know, I went into, so I, I mean, I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. Um, so obviously, like, like I mentioned, I've been doing the podcast for about four years now. And the first two years I was just interviewing farmers, um, around that two year mark around the, it was like the April is literally the month after everything shut down, uh, for COVID. I was like this close to to quitting the podcast. I had taken like a three or four month hiatus and I was kind of just like done with it. I was like, you know, I'm not gonna be able to get interviews now. Like everything is shut down. Like what, why am I gonna keep going? And I decided to take, you know, take a step outside of my comfort zone, reach out online and find guests that were outside of the ag sector. I was like, you know what? Nobody, like all the other ag podcasts I'm listening to are just talking to farmers. It's a buy farmer for farmer show. I want to change it up. I'm going to go talk to people who aren't farmers, see what their perspectives are. Right after I started doing that, I had the idea of, okay, well, what if I did a whole mini series on like the urban rural split, you know, what, like, what, what would I be able to cover? And I spent like a solid year and a half on this. Like I I was like researching it for like a, a very long time, trying to look for guests for it, trying to get people for it didn't have much luck for a long time until eventually I, I finally was like, you know what, I'm just going to bite the bullet and start it. And I started it. And like you mentioned, you were one of my first guests on there. Um, it started off really strong. You know, my first few episodes were really good. I had a really strong, uh, you know, guest pool to, to, to use. And it was, uh, had some really great conversations and it was awesome. A couple guests on there were, were good. You know, like maybe, maybe they just didn't quite understand like what I was expecting out of the conversation or, you know, it just wasn't quite to the par that I was looking for, for the, for the types of conversations I was wanting to have. And then towards the end, I was struggling to even get guests to talk about certain subjects. So I was like doing a bunch of solo episodes, trying to talk about things. I hate doing solo episodes. I just, I can't talk to, I can't talk about myself for more than, you know, 30 minutes without getting bored. Um, so I did a few 20 minute, 30 minute episodes, just kind of just to finish off the series. So I could say it was done. Um, I would very much like to do like a full summary episode where I can kind of just say, okay, this is the findings of everything that I had from all the conversations that I had. But at that point I was so burnt out from doing the podcast for like months on end without any breaks. And I was like ready for something new. So I kind of was like, you know what? I'm just going to finish this off and then take a few months off. And that's actually where I'm at right now. Like at breaking the fourth wall, this is a couple weeks before the first episode of season four is supposed to come out. And I haven't, posted anything in three months just because i've been giving myself time to relax i took a month off and then i was like all right i have ideas again i can't i can't stop anymore so i went back into producing episodes but um overall the series was good it wasn't quite what i was hoping for but i think i kind of built myself this imagine you know this imaginary episode basis of like you know i'm gonna have these great episodes and it's gonna tell this great story and like people are gonna love it and it just kind of not that it flopped, it just kind of didn't quite meet expectations. Right, and from one small podcast to another, you, the pool that you have available compared to the pool that other places, you know, to the sure. stereotypical answer is Joe Rogan. The yeah. pool that he has, two completely different pools. Right, um, you have to find local talent or even or smaller talent online. The the look if you don't produce a podcast, here's a little secret: the online talent pool is awful, um, because everybody has a podcast and not. Not everybody's a good speaker. Mm-hmm. It's not. Th- it's not even that their ideas are bad. It's that not everybody can get them out there well. Um, I've been out of it for a couple months now, and I'm struggling to get my ideas out there because I haven't honed this skill in a bit. I've been focused on other things, mm-hmm. and it is a skill, um, one that you've clearly 
you've made a long way since even we last <laughs> talked. Um, you've clearly gotten a lot better at getting, you came with notes, you are organized, you put your ideas out there, you know what you're talking about. Um, you're a lot more confident than even last time we spoke. Actually, that might be a fun, int- you know, listening experience for the listener go find the other episode i'm yeah. in and then compare the two yeah um, i'm probably a lot worse <laughs> <laughs> and you are probably a lot better so i think you're doing just fine but appreciate it <laughs> well i'm rooting best for you uh i've started i've been podcasting for a while to a couple years now at this point oh god i don't even want to think about that number on <laughs> um, multiple different projects and the i've seen the ground you've made it's pretty cool um it's pretty cool to see the breadth of the stuff that you've done in the last couple of months i haven't been able to listen to all of it obviously but i do a lot <laughs> you do a lot um i think i think you do a cool show and i'm proud of you thank you and i hope more people tell you that because really people don't care about ag and it's something that we should know more about so good job thank you if you I, don't hear it enough i hope you hear it more <laughs> no I, I appreciate you saying that i i mean every now and then people will say like man you're doing a great job but then i'm like have you listened to any episodes and they're like no but I'm sure you're doing great. It's like, okay, well, yeah, but, but actually like, you know, when people actually like can highlight for me, okay, well, this is what you were like before. And this is how you've improved that, that speaks volumes for me. So I appreciate you saying that. Yep. Um, and I think that, you know, a little bit of self-reflection these past few episodes, I've done like a little bit of self-reflection with my guests because this is my, uh, my all-star season. You know, I'm bringing back some of my favorite guests and some of the more fun conversations that I've had. And, um, I've been able to kind of connect with other podcaster friends and we've had like little, like, you know, how's my podcast growing? How's your podcast growing? What have you been doing differently? And I've been able to realize that, you know, without myself realizing it, kind of other people like yourself pointing it out to me, I've, I've grown a lot more comfortable in my, in my skin as a podcaster. You know, I've kind of gotten to a point where I'm able to like, just kind of talk about what I want to talk about. You know, I, I used to be so pressed on like, okay, I have to have this topic and I have to make sure we talk about these things. I have to, you know, and I'm kind of just like, Hey, if we get there, we get there. That's cool. You know? Right. But you don't want to force the conversation. Right. Learning not to force the conversation is probably one of the biggest things a podcaster should learn. Mm-hmm. Unless you're doing a scripted informational show that's educational about a topic. That's cool. But then you're not having conversations with other people because as soon as you start having other people on, it's no longer, it's not a lecture, it's a conversation. And right. conversations take all sorts of twists and turns. They're harder to do. People like try and do conversational podcasts because they seem easier. Oh, I'm just going to sit down and have a conversation. It's like, do you understand how much <laughs> planning and thought it takes to have an engaging conversation that other people will give a shit about for 40 minutes? It's yeah. not easy. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you in on what my secret has been. Um, and not to say that I have like, you know, the golden ticket to how to podcast or anything, but this works for me and I, I enjoy doing this. Uh, I talk about what I want and which, which sounds simple, right? You know, you always talk about what you want, but I talk about what I want and what I, what I find interesting. And I encourage my guests to share that with their friends and family. Right. You know, I, I focus less on like trying to get people to say, you know, to find my content interesting. And I focus more on, can I find people who will find the conversation interesting? And maybe they'll say, Hey, I was on this podcast. You should go check it out. You right. know? And that's actually worked for the most part. You know, I've had, I've had guests come back on and say, Hey, I, my little brother listens to your podcast all the time now. I'm like, that's, that's awesome. so cool. I, I love feeling, I love that feeling. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not here to talk about myself, but, that I, you know, for other podcasters, you know, my, my kind of tip is, you know, talk about what you want. You know, don't like like, you know, like Taylor said, don't force things, you know, just kind of let it flow naturally and push your guests to talk to other people for you. You know, like you like you're, you can do as much marketing as you want. But like you said, people may not care about your subject. I know a lot of people who do not care about agriculture until I give them a reason to care. Right. Um, and I've worked, you know, extre- incredibly hard to find to find reasons to make people care about agriculture and 
sometimes it's just not going to click. If it does, it does. But I'd rather talk about things that people are interested in and find a way to relate it to agriculture and then make them kind of bring that to, you know, the table for somebody else to, to enjoy. Right. Um, but that's just me. I ran into the same same sorts of issues with a political podcast that doesn't fit neatly in either box where mm-hmm. I'll sit there and I'll curse at Republicans and curse <laughs> at Democrats. Um, you do have to find people who are willing to, A, have the conversation, have an interesting conversation, not just po- push whatever line they want to push. Oh, my gosh. Trying to find people who just want to do more, who want to do more <laughs> than sell their podcast or their product or their book or whatever. That is so annoying in my <laughs> sphere. Um, you just, you just got to find good guests and keep keep honing in and having the conversations also make it to where you're growing as a person. You'll get more confident in your skin. I did a, before I did a political show, I did more of a philosophical show and I would dance around topics so much. I mean, even with the start of this current show that I've been working on the last couple years now, that is more politically focused. You know, at first I was like, Oh, I don't want to make people mad. I want to present both sides. And now I'm just going to look, nah, <laughs> I have my opinions. You either like them or you don't. And even if you don't, you should listen anyway. Cause other people think like me, um, and you get a lot more comfortable, you know, saying things like, yeah, the, the congressman that I live under, uh, who, who is my congressman, who is, quote, my party. I hate that man. <laughs> so glad he's leaving. Right. Um, and, and to be able to comfortably say that to a microphone that, you know, potentially thousands of people are going to hear and be, get mad at because they're your audience. Right. It's a lot of fun. And to see the growth that, you know, you've had it. I've had it. Other people that. I've talked to to see everybody kind of grow. It's a lot of fun. Podcasting is fun. If you stop trying to be Joe Rogan. Right. (laughs) No, that's, that's like the biggest, I see, I see always like new podcasters. And like when we first got started or, I say when we first got started, you know, when, when I had like my, my, my revival and like a couple of years ago when you kind of started this project up, I'm sure you saw it just like I did. There was a bunch of new podcasters coming in because it was COVID and everyone was like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, perfect time. I want to start a podcast. And all of them were like, I'm going to be the next Joe Rogan. It's like, OK, well, it's like, no, you're not. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but like nobody's the next Joe Rogan because Joe Rogan's the only Joe Rogan. Yeah, I don't even think we want Joe Rogan anymore. Like, I, I, I kind of would be OK if he sort of sunset it out. Honestly, like I, you know, I'm, I'm not a big controversial person, but I'm not a fan of Joe Rogan. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, nothing against him. I'm sure he's a great guy, but I just, I, I don't enjoy his content. I don't enjoy his style of content, you know? Correct. Um, you yeah. Know, I'm, I'm very much like a, can we just talk about something that matters, you know, or something that's fun or something that people are going to enjoy? Sure. Um, you know, like, and I, I hate to be that hipster, but I very much enjoy indie podcasts for that reason. That they just kind of don't care. They'll just kind of talk about what they want to talk about because they're not pressured by a studio and they're not, you know, some celebrity that has a message to push and they're not, you know, like they just kind of talk about whatever's fun to them. I, I appreciate that more than somebody who's big and famous and who wants to push all this stuff. Right. There's a passion there that isn't there are realities you have to consider once you reach a certain size and sure. passion cannot be a primary driver. And this is not unique to Joe Rogan. This is any of the bigger podcasts right. um, that range from the political, you know, Ben Shapiro, Vosh, all the way down to silly stuff like Tim Dillon and Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I don't want to plug my stuff. So I'm just going <laughs> to say re re listen to the beginning. I'll be back in, february march all right yeah well whenever you're back i'd, ha- I'd love to have you back on at some point um get you you know uh, like i said this episode will probably come out by the time this episode comes out you'll probably be back so i'll plug all your stuff you know let, let people go know where you're at but if anything changes by then you know i'd love to have you back on and share some more ideas of course um but yeah thanks again it was fun you know fun topic you know something i had kind of pushed me out of my out of my typical sphere because it's very you know very complicated so it was, it was fun though maybe do some research um but yeah, thanks again for joining me, Taylor. Um, you say you don't want to plug anything. You have any closing messages or anything? 
listen to each other. <laughs> I like that. Yep. Um, but thanks again for everyone listening and for everyone tuning in and for everyone who supported me over the past four years. I appreciate all of you. Hope to catch all of you next week. And don't forget, if you ate today, thank a farmer. <laughs>